The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Narratives of Purpose. My name is Claire Morigande. I am your host on this show. And my goal is to amplify social impact by bringing you inspiring individual stories of ordinary people who are making extraordinary social impact within their communities or around the world. So if you're looking for a program that showcases unique stories of changemakers, stories of people who are contributing to make a difference in society, and at the same time, you want to get inspired to take action, then this podcast is definitely for you. My first guest this November is Drisana McDaniel, or as she liked to be called, Drew McDaniel. Drew is a transformation activist based in Charleston, South Carolina. She co-founded the Transformative Teaching Collective, a worker-owned cooperative which promotes social justice education. She also founded her consulting practice for cultural transformation. In today's discussion, Drew talks about her approach centered around contemplation and spirituality to address social issues. Do take a moment to rate and to review our show on your preferred podcast listening app. But right now, listen to Drew's story and how she transforms to create sustainable change with her workshops. Hi, Drew. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really, really thrilled to have you uh, on the show today and to have this conversation around social justice education. But before we jump into the conversation, I'd like to hand it over to you and let you introduce yourself. What would you like our listeners to know about you? So one of the ways that I always introduce myself is uh, as a mother worker activist. I am uh, the parent of three people, uh, Isaiah, Indigo, and Inanna. And I work as a uh, race equity and justice facilitator for a, a small boutique consulting firm and um, an activist. And, and so what that means is that I uh, ask for meaningful change in multiple ways uh, in my life. And all of those um, parts and pieces of who I am are equally um, important. Um, there's no one role that I take more seriously than the other. They all go together and inform each other. I grew up in um, an Air Force family. So we lived all over. Um, so uh, we started out, I was born in Biloxi, Mississippi, um, and we were in California the first eight years of my life. We lived in Denver, Colorado. We moved to Germany, lived there for four years, had a, the great opportunity of kind of traveling all over Europe, um, playing basketball and running track. And then we landed in Charleston in 93, uh, where I went to high school for a couple of years in one year of college. Um, then I moved to Atlanta for a long time. And all of that's really important, I think, um, just because growing up that way really had a huge influence on how I see the world and how I saw the world. And, um, and, and, and even now, as I look back at the work that I do, uh, because landing in Charleston was one of the most painful and abrupt rude awakenings ever. It was, it was high school walking into the lunchroom at a, the, the high school I was attended and, and seeing sort of segregation manifest before my eyes, uh, you know. Uh, all the white kids sitting on one side, all the black kids sitting on the other side of the, the cafeteria. And I was just struck by how strange that was and also how 
I didn't really know where to sit. And, and it's not because I didn't know I was black. It's because, you know, everything else that I was doing at the school from the classes I was attending to the teams I was playing on were very much cross-racial. It's very painful uh, to not have that sort of international, multicultural lunch table that I was used to um, growing up in a military family. And so, like I said, that informed a lot of how I, um, a lot of the work that I do now, just because I, I, I'm feeling that pain and then moving to a place like Atlanta, where I say there's 8,000 ways to be Black, and then returning to Charleston uh, with a sense of work to do, a sense of purpose and work to do. So now, yeah, I, I live in the Charleston area and work from um, home most of the time, uh, but also to facilitate in person now as things are opening up again, which is really exciting. And I'm also, um, I study as well. So I parent, I work, and I study. I, I attend uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I, um, I'm studying women, gender, spirituality, and social justice. So coming back to your work and what you do um, in Charleston. So as I said before, you are the co-founder of the Transformative Teaching Collective. So can you tell me how that all started? What drove you exactly to, to be part of that collective and to become a co-founder? It was actually um, Cage Bryan's idea. And Cage is a dear friend who um, I met when I returned to university in my 30s here at the College of Charleston. Um, Cage taught a class with Dr. Um, Dr. O, Adeyajani Ofunin, uh, they taught a class on critical dialogue on race, gender, and diversity. And I took that class my last semester before graduating, and it changed my life. The idea that we could come together to discuss important topics that were really contemplated across difference was really therapeutic for me. Like I said, I sort of had that awakening um, years prior, and there was just this aha moment of like, oh, we can do something about this. And so the Transformative Teaching Collective was, was founded. We're horizontally organized cooperative, so we're really all co-founders. Um, I started working with it early on. It was a few of us. And basically, we, uh, we all apply our, our graduate level training and expertise in fields of social justice, uh, political science, nursing, spiritual studies and more. And we come from different ethnic groups, uh, different racializations, genders, um, sexual orientations, age and spirituality. So you said that you're actually horizontally organized. So can you tell me exactly how you interact together and how is your structure? What that means is there's no hierarchy at all. There's no director. That's why I said we're all co-founders. We're co-members. It is a cooperative collective. We all are out in the world And we all have careers as professionals. Some folks um, are executive directors of nonprofits. Some folks are professors. We even have a PA in our group. Um, we do all kinds of work. Uh, and what we do is when we get the opportunity and someone approaches us about work, uh, we come together and decide who has the time and space to do this work, um, to take on this project. And we just cooperatively design whatever design for the project that's coming up and um, get on the line and meet with the folks and talk about what they want, customize something for them together. And in, in our co-op also, we give back. So everything that we earn goes into a collective collection. So we are, we're constantly kind of, um, no matter what kind of work we're doing, we're constantly pouring back into the co-op funding from our work. I think the entire world should work that way. 
um, where there is no power structure, where we are constantly collaborating and co-creating and just growing together. So what is it exactly do you do in terms of, you know, what do you offer the communities and how has your work been welcomed? What we do is um, we co-create dialogue-centered social justice education. Uh, we create spaces where communities can examine social identities and social systems uh, and think and learn and discover self-knowing and collective knowing together. We educate against oppression through relationship building, conflict resolution, uh, and our work is grounded in healing and transformative justice. Early on, we um, quarterly, we would create community events, create opportunities for folks to come together to experience what it is like to um, engage in intergroup dialogue. We would organize, you know, questions um, for our group, create a structure, um, break bread, and sit together and, and just connect on um, meaningful questions. And what happens with intergroup dialogue that I think is different than sort of having these really sort of um, scripted agendas is the surprise element, is the unearthing of, of the unknown. It's, it's planting a question and thinking through it out loud. It's not having the prepared answers. Um, and so it's been really well received, actually, in light of the uh, last couple of years and, and, and uh, this critical unearthing that we're in the midst of, there's been a lot of work we've had with different organizations. So we've worked with colleges, college students. We've worked with educators, public school educators, public school psychologists. Uh, we've worked with community groups. Really, we've worked with all kinds of different organizations. And we, like I said, we'll meet with them and kind of, you know, uh, get a sense of what they're looking for and, and, and customize something to support their goals. And I'd say in South Carolina in particular, like I, I can remember in the beginning, like it wasn't always comfortable work. You know, we have a couple of spaces where I feel like the work was abruptly stopped due to like incredible discomfort. But most of the communities that we work with have generously welcomed our work and continue to advocate for it. I think that we've also learned so much about what it is that we aim for with our work, which is real, really it's transformation. And so we also learned who we will work well with and who we won't work well with. We really are very much interested in really facilitating and holding space for transformation and transformation takes time. It's not compliance oriented. It's certainly not about you know, um, checking a box and making people feel really comfortable. And do you have any any examples or any highlights of how one project uh, was run? Well, there's not much that comes to mind because they're all so different. But what I can say is the most powerful, I, I guess, aspect of what we do is being in that space where there's these aha moments, the unearthing the not known kind of emerging for us to all hold space for and respond to. And that's, I think, the most exciting part of this. And it's really also like narrative, like really, you know, when we, when you ask a question, you hear someone's story. And when you bear witness to that story as a group, something happens. We come to know um, complexity more fully. We come to know how truly, like what being human really is. And I think that creating that container where that can happen is really the most amazing part of the work we do. And I can imagine this is both transformative, not only for the people you're working with, but also for yourself. I mean, you personally, but also your, your collective, right? Co-creating these spaces with people requires that even as a facilitator, you are also as transparent and you are also vulnerable. And yes, 
So there's this way that in that container, there's this porosity, right? There's this way that we all uh, practice being vulnerable and therefore um, we're changed. We're changed. We're changed by the sharing. I remember early on, like I'd emerge with what I call the vulnerability hangover where I'm like, did I really say that? And so much of that came from like, kind of like being in a world where I watched other people facilitating or teaching who weren't vulnerable, right? They were just like sort of what bell hooks would refer to as the um, objectified, all-knowing kind of figure, you know? And so they would hold their cards. And so for me as a facilitator, I find that being incredibly transparent and vulnerable is like that's where, that's where the magic, that's where the alchemy happens. That's where the transformation happens but that we don't see enough of that. And so for um, when I started out, I used to yeah, just emerge afterwards, like, oh my God, I can't believe, I can't believe. And then, it, and then it was this muscle that I exercised and it's really the way that I am now in the world in general. And so, yeah, so there's this way that we are changed. We are changed process as well because we are in the process as well. And how does that relate to, to the work you do also with your practice? Because I mentioned before that you have uh, your consulting practice for cultural transformation. Is that somehow different or similar to what you're doing with the collective? So my practice is um, the alchemy of now. It's my baby. It's uh, born of my own sort of um, contemplations and questions. And um, But it definitely is connected to my work with the teaching collective because As a facilitator, I sort of was able to gain insight into how oppression breaks our spirits and lives inside of us. How it's different is uh, the activist work that I did with the collective was very much about learning to collect, like, connect these social patterns to social identities and to our experiences with oppression and inequality. I still found that, that social justice work lacked the depth of spiritual inquiry uh, and practice. And, and that for me is where the sort of the alchemy of now was born, uh, was, was really getting a sense of like bearing witness to kind of what it was like for people to bring their narratives forward and really being very curious about how psycho-spiritual components of that. So how we would think about those experiences and how we coped. And so the, the alchemy of now was really about uh, going even deeper In the traditional academy or the traditional sector, like talking about spirituality is a big no-no. In my work on my own, like, and even actually with the collective, this connects because we are a co-op. So even sharing our ideas, we're like, oh yeah, we should be talking about things in this way. Um, but my work is very, very much centered in contemplation and spirituality. It's bringing that element to the center of our work. I yearned for a more integrated approach that named and included our multiple dimensions of being, our multiple ways of being, so that really could touch on like who we were, our, our deep interiority, again, like how we were coping and how we were thinking. And, and, and also, I feel like my analysis really looks at um, how the spiritual aspects of our experiences lead us to act a particular kind of way. So who do you work with and, you know, what type of workshops do you facilitate? Do people come to you or is it kind of also an extension of your collective and you have like this connection with different people? Can you tell me about that? Like I said, I'm, I, I work full time as a race equity and justice facilitator. I work with the collective when I can and um, I parent and I study. I say that to just be really clear about the fact that the alchemy of now is something that is in development. So this past year, I was fortunate enough, I put together a series for the Alchemy of Now uh, entitled, We Are All Just Walking Each Other Home. 
that's the Ram Dass quote, uh, and it's social justice and anti-racism uh, education for therapists, mental health practitioners, and social workers. And it was an eight-part series. And I had the opportunity um, to uh, engage with groups of folks who signed up for it, signed up for the series. Um, and it was absolutely incredible. And I was able to fold in all of those sort of aspects of transformational education that I think to be really important into um, that series. Uh, so that's an example of folks I've worked with. Um, so a part of, uh, as it's in, in, in development, a part of what I, what I really hope to do is to engage in um, transformational coaching. So really, yeah, really spending time working with folks individually, but also then creating group spaces where we can come together as well. And I'd say that a lot of, uh, also, like I said, with it being in development, a lot of what I, um, I'm doing right now is a lot of writing. And so my writing, I actually have a, a piece that will be um, published in an anthology later on this summer that really begins to kind of um, look at uh, sort of the, the, the multidimensionality that I was talking about um, of, of our ways of being and, and, and put forward sort of a framework for how we can begin to think about uh, the type of transformation and wholeness that we are um, seeking. How do you see this type of approach evolving in terms of addressing, you know, um, equality, social justice, and so on? Do you think that people will be more and more open to this type of approach? One of the things, you know, and it's complex to speak about any benefit of the time, but with all things, there's always a both-and factor. And so these two years, as devastating as they've been, they've also been um, enriching in some ways in that it landed us into a place of clarity to know sort of um, more fully uh, our vulnerability, right? And to know more fully what it is like when we experience the contrast, the contrast to what was. We all had to slow down in a way. And, and in slowing down, some of us were able to tap back into what was sort of unlearned out of us. And I think so this is a time for remembering, and I separate those words, this is a time for beginning to sort of excavate and recall and rediscover like what was really most meaningful um, so that we can approach our lives with a sense of integrity, with a sense of that sort of wholeness. And I think that's what we're yearning for. You know, the same way that I said that even, you know, in teaching workshops, there was this, I was yearning for poetry. I was yearning for moments to slow down and engage in a deeper type of contemplation. And I think that many of us are there, like right now, right? And so, so, the, so the, the opportunity is like in the midst of all of this sort of unearthing is also like, oh, there's an opportunity here, you know? And we that are living here right now get to be a part of ushering in that transformation that we know in our bones that we are in, you know, in the midst of remembering is a possibility. I think that what happens is that we recognize that this is a time of renewal, um, that we act as if we know that because the systems that we have been living in are entirely unsustainable and how we've worked too hard for too little for too long, we begin to think about what we need to change. And, and, and so what I, what I say, there's this prayer that I've been making, um, but what I'll say is like, you know, what my hope is that we 
stay focused on and cultivate the ability to make peace with the paradox. Um, and to really, uh, to know like radical trust, like to when we can remember these things that we get to the root of what it is that, that is there for us to learn, that we find a way to live with an infinite hope, and not a hope of the mind, but a hope in action. Like what do we do knowing what we know? Like how do we start to think, right? And, and, and that we focus on the promise of a new earth. That we, that we get to sort of usher in. And that takes time. And I think that that is the thing that we can really take away from this. It's what I'm definitely constantly advocating for is more time. One of my favorite thinkers is Peter Block. He writes several books, but one of the things he says is, you know, speed is the enemy of depth. You know, and it's true, you know, depth is necessary for transformation. And I think that's our great opportunity right now. And that's what people are yearning for. Before we move to the last part, I just wanted to, you know, just leave you the stage. And is there something you want, you know, the, the listeners to, to take home from everything that you've said? We have to focus on how we're connected. Our transformation depends on a shift in our perspective and a willingness to grapple with complexity. We are not just individuals, despite the fact that we have been taught that and despite the fact that we've internalized certain ideas and practices as normal that isolate us, that separate us from each other, that implode, um, we have to build collectively. We need each other. And I don't mean we just need our blood family, our blood kin. I mean, we need each other. We need to reach out across difference. And that is, that is. Uh, the alchemy. That is the alchemy of now. We need to think together and work together and contemplate together and consider what possibilities may exist. And we need each other for that. We each have our own unique sort of gifts that we've come with, you know, and that's the individual part. But those, those gifts do nothing on their own. We need each other. So Drew, at the end of my show, what I always do is I have this sneak preview section to know a bit more about what my guests listen to in terms of music or what books they're reading. So first question, what music are you listening to often at this time or what book are you reading right now? So I am reading um, Pedagogies of Crossing, Meditations on Feminism, Sexual Politics, Memory and the Sacred by M. Jackie Alexander. It's an anthology of profound, beautiful essays. And I'm also reading Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves with a Gift from a Friend by Gloria Edom. Question number two. Um, is there a song or an album or perhaps even a book that was uh, particularly special for you at a specific time in your life? Yeah. So John Coltrane, um, I say that, so I love like a love supreme, but in particular the song, my John Coltrane song that I will, um, that will always be dear to me is Naima. Uh, it was a song that he wrote with his daughter's, yeah, daughter's title. And so the reason it's such an um, important, important song for me um, is it was uh, the song of my first child, Isaiah, who is now 22. And um, I would always play Naima uh, when nursing him at night. Third and last question. Um, is there a book or a piece of music that you would absolutely recommend for our listeners to look into? I'm definitely like playing Moonchild right now a lot. Uh, incredible band, incredible, incredible band. Um, but I have, to, I have a book. I have a book. 
Um, the book is uh, it's called Radical Eco-Psychology, and it's by Andy Fisher, and it is incredible, in particular for these times. It's, it, again, thinking about um, how to meet this moment and just the idea of, like, the radical, right? It's getting to the root of um, our relationship between how we think and our relationship to um, the environment. It's absolutely brilliant. Drew, it's been really amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and for sharing your journey and your, your aspirations and everything that you're doing. And I hope that we will stay in touch. Thank you. Me too. This has been fun. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. That was episode 24, a conversation with Drew McDaniel. I have to say that I really love this conversation. To know that people are developing methods grounded in healing and transformative justice within communities is simply great and full of hope. As Drew explained it, this work needs to be built collectively for true social change to happen because we are all interconnected. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to this new episode. I appreciate you taking the time. Join me again in two weeks for another conversation around justice with a new guest. Don't forget to follow us on social media for previews on upcoming guests, episodes, but also our new live events. Check us out on Facebook at Narratives of Purpose, on Instagram at Narratives of Purpose underscore podcast, and on LinkedIn at Narratives of Purpose podcast. If you like our show, do share it within your network and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you also sign up for our newsletter on our homepage so you can stay informed about all our activities. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well and stay inspired. This podcast was produced by Tom at Rustic Studios.